Thanks. Thanks, Simon. Um, I would also like to thank again Alex and Andrew for having us here in London. It's so exciting to all be gathered here together and talk to all the, uh, the other policy and history organisations. So the policy that I want to examine today within an historical context stretches the definition of policy. It's policy very broadly defined. And the policy is the basic structure of governance in Australia, our federal system of government. So first I want to set the scene in terms of the policy problem, the shortcomings of the Australian Federation. Then I'll provide some historical background that might explain why Australia's federal system of government has proved so difficult to reform. And then I'll close with some reflections about what we might do to stimulate reform. So the Australian Federation that was established in 1901 joined six British colonies into a nation with one central government, we call the Commonwealth, and six state governments. The Commonwealth took a handful of essential powers like defence, immigration, customs and communications and left the rest with the states. This minimalist version of federalism was the only way that some of the more reluctant states could be coaxed into the Union. And the Australian Federation was believed at the time to represent the vanguard of democratic governance. It was the People's Federation because the people had reignited the process of federation when it had stalled in the hands of politicians in the 1890s. And the Australian people had voted at referendum to accept the constitution that created the federation. However, shortcomings rapidly became apparent. In 1902, one of Australia's first prime ministers, Alfred Deakin, after whom our university is named, predicted that just as the power of the purse in Great Britain established by degrees the authority of the commons, it will ultimately establish in Australia the authority of the Commonwealth. Deakin said, the rights of self-government of the states have been fondly supposed to be safeguarded by the constitution. It left them legally free but financially bound to the chariot wheels of the central government. Now, the, the Deakin prophecy, as that came to be called, has well and truly come to pass. A century ago, the Commonwealth budget was only about a twentieth of the combined spending of state and local governments. By the Second World War, Canberra's spending had risen to half of state and local government spending, and the states received 14% of their income from the Commonwealth. Last financial year, 47% of state income came from federal sources, and combined state and territory budgets were just over half as big as the Commonwealth's. While the states are now financial minnows compared to the Commonwealth, they deliver the bulk of the services like health and education. This disjuncture of means and responsibility leads to a range of predictable problems. There is the political blame shifting that results from clear lines of responsibility. There is a lack of accountability, service duplication and waste. A Senate committee established in 2010 to examine federation reform found that the potential saving from abolishing the states was as high as $50 billion a year. Australian political history is littered with failed attempts to reform the federation. Calls to amend the constitution and even to abolish the states have come mostly from the Labor side. Gough Whitlam, Prime Minister, Labor Prime Minister in the 1970s, was famously hostile to the states and Bob Hawke, the Prime Minister during the 1980s and 1990s, he still comes out regularly with calls to get rid of the states. And he spent a lot of his life in South Australia and Western Australia, which probably makes that even more surprising. 
Uh, but there is bipartisan consensus that the Federation is broken. The long-standing Conservative Prime Minister, John Howard, admitted if the Constitution was being written in the 1990s instead of the 1890s, it would not include the states. And former Conservative Prime Minister Tony Abbott said, that, said in launching yet another failed reform effort in 2014 that, quote, the Federation has come to a sorry pass. The changes that have occurred in the balance of the Federation have happened mostly indirectly by interpretations of the Constitution by the High Court that deliver greater power to the centre, counter the, to the intentions of the people who drafted the Constitution in the 1890s. The Constitution itself, which must be amended by referendum, has remained largely unchanged. Australians have rejected 36 of 44 proposed amendments to the Constitution since 1901. So the policy question I want to ask is this, why, despite there being a compelling and bipartisan case for federation reform, has that reform proved so difficult? And I propose that some answers can be found in the history of the relationship between Australians and their federation. So I want to go back to federation and the years immediately following to discern whether there was an initial failure to attach that continues to hamper efforts at reform. An obvious explanation for why Australians feel little affection towards their federation and little interest in its reform is because the Act of Federation itself in 1901 lacked sentiment. This has been the topic of historiographical debate in Australia. To what extent was federation a popular movement? Or to what extent was it a cynical political fix that benefited the top end of town? The most famous proponent of the view that federation was a process lacking in sentiment was the political scientist Finn Crisp, who described it in 1949 as a self-serving deal between men of property. This radical critique of federation became highly influential in the decades after the Second World War. And the revision of the argument that federation was a capitalist stitch-up had to wait several decades, a reflection perhaps of the general lack of in interest shown by um, Australian historians in, in Federation. Uh, the prelude to the centenary of Federation in 2001 stirred scholarly interest and, and opened government coffers for funding for historians to study Federation. Helen Irving's To Constitute a Nation, published in 1999, described how the process of Federation was far more complex than the business deal version put forward by Finn Crisp. She detailed the optimism and progressivism of many of the Federationists. Her book described the social movements, including the women's movement, which influenced the creation of what she described as a vernacular constitution. Helen Irving's book was followed by John Hurst's The Sentimental Nation in 2000. Hurst's book presented a much more emphatic challenge to the Federationist business deal interpretation. Uh, was, federation, was Australia's federation merely a practical business arrangement, he asked? No, was his emphatic answer. It was accomplished by poets, patriots and politicians pursuing the ideal of nationhood. They expressed and encouraged a national sentiment without which union would have been impossible. There was no pressing need to federate. This was a sentimental nation, he wrote. Hearst then described in that book the alacrity with which Federation departed from collective memory. He said all the people, events and places that Federalists declared would be historic never became so. 
the names of the convention delegates, the electoral battles of Barton against Reid, the landing place of the first Governor-General and the site of his swearing in, the name of the first Prime Minister, all are forgotten. So how could something that apparently, according to John Hurst, inspired such sentiment be forgotten so quickly? He, Hurst only offers cursory explanations in his book. So in order to understand better the rapid dwindling of the Federation spirit, I've gone back and looked at how the anniversary of Federation was commemorated in its early years. So from the very start, there appeared to be disagreement and uncertainty about which day Federation should be celebrated on. The first Prime Minister, Edmund Barton, made a statement on the 26th of December 1901 confirming that nothing has been done to celebrate the inauguration of the Commonwealth. Uh, the justification that he gave for the government's inaction was a certain embarrassment of choice in the matter. Barton claimed that there were several candidates for the commemoration. The 1st of Jan January, which was the actual date of the inauguration, and he said the 1st of July, the date of royal assent to the Constitution Act. Um, it was actually the 2nd of July, he, he said the 1st of July. He said 30th of September, the proclamation of the Act in the London Gazette was another candidate. And then finally he said the 1st of May, the date that Parliament sat for the first time, was, was the final candidate. He said the 1st of May, it was actually the 9th of May. Um, so Barton claimed that one of these dates would be chosen, but he showed no inclination to do the choosing. In response to questions from the press, the Prime Minister said, if the people feel inclined to celebrate the anniversary, they can do so without the government taking the initiative. So what did happen on the first anniversary of Federation? It was marked in a very low-key way on both the 9th of July and the 1st of January, 9th of July 1901 and the 1st of January 1902. On the 9th of July 1901, Prime Minister Barton sent a telegram to Joseph Chamberlain, the Secretary of State for the Colonies. Australia greets the Empire on her happy birthday. Barton sent a similar telegram to the private secretary of the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and York, who were in Adelaide at that time. And similar telegrams were exchanged on the 1st of January 1902. Uh, and as far as I've found to date, there were no public events to commemorate the, the, um, the Commonwealth. So the debate over the best date for commemoration of Federation was raised in the Federal Parliament in early 1902. Senator Josiah Simon from South Australia expressed a preference for the 9th of July when Queen Victoria signed the Constitution Bill. He said it would be an excellent time of year, certainly much better than the 1st of January for the commemoration of a great historical event. Senator Stewart from Queensland begged to differ. He could not understand this rushing up and down the calendar for a day on which to celebrate the proclamation of the establishment of the Commonwealth we cannot, without stultifying ourselves, depart from the 1st of January. Senator Glassie from Queensland was equally adamant that the date should not, should not be moved from the 1st of January, claiming that it has an historical significance and to substitute it for any other day would rob the celebration of its charm and effect in the minds of a great number of people. And as a Scot, Glassie attached great importance to the 1st of January's New Year's Day um, but in the Australian context, he believed the significance of the 1st of January was now fixed to Federation. The Postmaster General, Senator Drake, could see the problem with the 1st of January. A great number of persons desire on New Year's Day to go to seaside resorts 
and therefore it would not be a convenient day to adopt as Commonwealth Day. It would have no special significance. It would, would be celebrated as it has been for years as New Year's Day. But unlike many of his colleagues in politics, Drake was reluctant to create another public holiday by moving Federation celebrations to another date. Uh, the second anniversary of Federation was as unremarkable as the first. The only official recognition in Melbourne, the temporary seat of the National Parliament, um, that Australia was celebrating its second birthday was the flying of the Royal Standard and the Union Jack on the flagstaffs at each end of Parliament House in Spring Street. The Governor-General, Lord Tennyson, was passing a quiet holiday at Marble Hill, South Australia, while the Prime Minister was enjoying some respite at home in suburban Sydney. In the absence of the Governor-General, noted the Age newspaper, no official functions were held. According to the Melbourne Herald, no Commonwealth Celebration Day has been officially fixed upon. The Government and the Parliament have been too busy with matters of more practical concern. There was a restrained register of protest against the lack of interest. A columnist in Victoria's Namurka Leader contrasted the apathy of 1903 with the enthusiasm of 1901. He would have been a bold man indeed who in 1901 would have ventured to predict that in two short years the patriotic fervour and imperialistic rejoicings with which the inauguration of the Commonwealth was celebrated would have been practically <coughs> non-existent. Tasmanians were always very enthusiastic about federating and they seem to have been more motivated than their mainland, mainland counterparts to commemorate federation. The Launceston City Council began making plans to celebrate what it called Commonwealth Day in December 1902. Federation was an event, the council believed, which would always have the first historical recognition in the life and records of the Australian people but this was more aspiration than reality. The examiner newspaper noted the lack of national feeling. The fact that the Commonwealth was inaugurated on New Year's Day should make it the great national holiday of Australia. So far, however, we have not been able to get away from the old surroundings. We have hardly come to realise our new nationality and hence it sits lightly on our shoulders. And the paper went on to offer an interesting explanation for Australians' apathy. In the United States, the 4th of July is regarded as the day of the year. Then they won their independence after a protracted struggle, while ours was a free gift from the dear old motherland. <laughs> in 1904, a poem called Commonwealth Day 1901 was published in the Charters Towers Evening Telegraph. The author, who went by the pseudonym Organ Grinder, was inspired by Shelley's Ozymandias. The poem referred to a fountain that was built in 1901 to commemorate Federation. A fountain built to celebrate the joyous import of the day and be a lasting monument through far and near its glittering spray. In a far off time, some future councillor might say, what sort of men were those that ruled when we became a nation, pray? Did tin and paint and putty stand, the shoddy emblems of the band? Then is their history written sand and their mean glory passed away? So the mean glory of the Federationists had well and truly passed away. On the 25th of November 1910, John West, the member for East Sydney, asked whether the government had taken any steps towards celebrating the Commonwealth decenary, 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 10th anniversary. Attorney General WM Hughes, Billy Hughes, later Prime Minister, replied that the government had not given the issue consideration. West asked uh, Hughes again a few weeks later, 
To which the Attorney-General replied, it has not been considered by the government, but ministers are willing to consider it and will be glad to receive any suggestions which the honourable member may have to offer. And needless to say, nothing happened. So just in closing, Simon, um, I find it remarkable that Australians of the early 20th century did not feel more inclined to commemorate the peaceful federation of the six British colonies into a progressive democratic nation, but maybe that perspective is shaped by, by the world that we live in now, and um, when some of these things seem precarious, that achievement seems all the greater. Um, and perhaps Helen Irving and John Hurst overstate the extent of the idealism and enthusiasm about federation. Perhaps those sentiments were rapidly submerged beneath the rising tide of new imperialism and martial nationalism. But for the purposes of federation reform in 2018, that early failure to attach poses a problem because the Australian public needs to be engaged and informed in order for the federation to be, uh, in order for federation reform to be achieved. And that long tradition of apathy and detachment has to be surmounted. Uh, in terms of future directions for federation reform, I don't feel uh, confident that the peaceful political achievement of nationhood is ever going to excite and unite people in the way that the blood sacrifice uh, mythology appears to. I can't imagine that a federation legend is going to replace the Anzac legend. Uh, cashed up Australians can't research their forebears, their federation forebears on the internet and make emotional emotion-fueled uh, pilgrimages, pilgrimages to Gallipoli in northern France to lay flowers on their graves like they can with forebears from the First World War. For all its virtues, the Australian nation-making moment lacks existential gravitas. As the Launceston Examiner said in 1902, Australian nationhood was given, not taken, and our constitution is a dull legal document, not a sacred symbol like the US Constitution. In the absence of sentimental attachment to the Federation, how do we summon the appetite for reform? I think the answer might be by appealing to another basic human emotion, greed, by reminding Australians of the massive potential for saving money through a reformed Federation. But we also have to bear in mind that Federation reform is bucking up against another basic emotion, which is suspicion of politicians and whatever they have to say. Thank you.